Well, the great philosopher Brian O'Driscoll uh, once said at a press conference for an Ireland rugby game, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. What is wisdom? Uh, we might say it is skill for living, it is knowledge applied. Uh, we might say that could take place or uh, in, in various ways. It's a, an ability to survive or it's a technical ability. It's an administrative ability, relational ability. All of these things involve a level of wisdom. Wisdom is lived out. It is practical. Uh, we are living at a time uh, when people talk about my lived experience. I sort of wonder when I hear that, what other sort of experience could anyone be talking about? Because all of our experience is lived. But anyway, our, our short passage begins not with that question, but with a question in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? And in many ways, James is the, is the book of wisdom in the New Testament. It's the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. And that's the question that he begins with, who is wise and understanding among you? We might wonder, is James echoing a view uh, those he writes to hold about themselves? Again, as a, a skilled surgeon, we've been thinking of James as the doctor, diagnosing symptoms, uh, and then prescribing the appropriate medicine. And more than that, though, he is an apostle of Christ. He wields the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is living and active double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we've been considering how uh, it's a divided heart that's double-mindedness, which is really uh, the root of all of these uh, presenting symptoms that we see in the book of James. And so, this question that he asks is a, a question for diagnosis. Do you think you're wise and have understanding? James says, show me, show me, you who think you are wise. And following on from verses 1 to 12 that we looked at last time, uh, so much with the use of our words and how our words are a window into our hearts, James says, don't just talk to me about wisdom, show me. That's what he goes on to command in the second half of verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the weakness of wisdom. Good conduct, that's a praiseworthy way of life. He talks about works of wisdom, talks about meekness, and all of this is maybe better understood or helps us to understand well what he's talking about when it's contrasted with envy and strife or jealousy and selfish ambition. I wonder as you, you sit there, if I ask you the question, what is it that you hate? What do you hate? Maybe there's certain things you say, well, I hate this. I hate some things on TV. I hate when I get a rag nail. I hate people who just smack of arrogance. I wonder what it is that you hate. There's all sorts of things from the trivial to the very significant. Well, God hates pride, and we very much see that in this passage and what follows. And when we think about uh, what might go wrong in relationships. We're thinking about this as a letter written to the church. We're thinking about then these things that have been mentioned, meekness versus jealousy and selfish ambition. When we think of uh, what might go wrong 
in a relational conflict or a church conflict, there's usually selfish ambition and jealousy involved. We might look for quick solutions to, to fix this, but don't do that. We're prone to think pragmatically, looking for quick compromises. Sure, stick a plaster on it now, and that will sort it. God's Word, and as we've seen, especially in James, is much more focused on having a renewed and wise heart, and that outward actions then flow from that, rather than just doing little changes to our outward actions, to the things we say and the things we do. It starts on the inside and then works its way out. So who is wise and understanding among you? He speaks about wisdom and understanding. Uh, and in many ways, so many of our the evil things come from thinking that we have a greater ability than others. It's pride where we look down on others, thinking we're better than them thinking we have more money than them, thinking that we're more intelligent than them, thinking that we are more skilled than them, that we've got our life together in a better way than the person we have in mind. Instead, the call of the Christian is to meek godliness. So James says, let him show it by his good conduct, works done in meekness of wisdom. And these two go well together, wisdom and understanding or wisdom and knowledge one informs, the other directs. I wonder, have you heard someone uh, described as, and I'm sure you have, this guy or this lady, so heavenly minded to be of no earthly use. You've heard that uh, phrase, yes. Uh, maybe you, someone comes to mind, as you, maybe you're that person. Uh, you've heard that said to you, so heavenly minded to be of no earthly use. Well, in many ways, this passage actually makes a mockery of that statement. In a sense, it's saying we're not heavenly-minded enough, if that's the case, or might say not truly heavenly-minded, because someone who is, whose mind has been gripped and transform, being transformed by the glory of God, the glory of Christ, their mind is changed and their life is changed, and that is seen. And so they're the most earthy person who's actually the person who has their mind filled with the right things the way the world should work, fixed on things above rather than just on earthly things. So maybe that uh, hopefully is not something that would be used of you so heavenly minded to be of no earthly use. You see, a Christian is better known by his life than by his speech. And in this passage, we see two types of wisdom. There's wisdom from above, and then there's wisdom from below, which is earthly wisdom. Uh, for those who think they are wise, we might do some analysis. False wisdom, uh, we could say, it could be seen in three ways. The worldly wise, firstly, uh, people who are cunning, people who might uh, spin a, a web of, of lies, might try all sorts of things to get their way uh, to achieve worldly aims. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? Second type of people, not the worldly wise, but those who content themselves with human knowledge. Uh, there are those, as I'm sure you know, who know all sorts of ins and outs of things to do. Uh, they, they would win the, the pub quiz every time. They've got a great general knowledge about all sorts of things, significant and trivial. They'd be able to explain these things to you, and yet they do not know God and they actually don't know themselves. Their self-awareness is limited. 
uh, and sometimes the non-Christian uh, might have lots of intelligence, far more intelligent than anyone here, and yet they claim to be wise. Romans says they actually became fools. There's then people who are always on the lookout for ideas, for speculations about all sorts of things, uh, and yet they again, similarly, they look to heaven uh, and they have no wisdom. There's great rabbis of the world, uh, and yet, as Psalm 19 says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. People looking for wisdom in the wrong places instead of looking to God's words. Well, those are a few things on false wisdom. Uh, the opposite then is obviously what we want to look at. What is true wisdom? What is the wisdom that leads to meekness? Well, we could say from this passage, wise men are going to be less angry and more humble, less angry, uh, because the more wisdom a person has, the more he can check passion. And again, to, to in a sense, move from the, the New Testament book of wisdom to the Old Testament, Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. And so, if you claim to be wise, who is wise and is understanding among you? The person who has patience is wise. As well as being less angry, uh, the wise person is more humble. With humility comes wisdom, Proverbs 11.2 says. Pride and foolishness always seem to go together, but so do humility and wisdom. The world often looks on meekness as foolishness, but actually, as we know from Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount, it is actually heavenly wisdom. Blessed are the meek. In verse 14 then, if we, we look there, James goes on to show the opposite of true heavenly wisdom and how it can be seen. And it can be seen in these two ways, bitter jealousy or envy. He notes the root of tongue evils. If we think about uh, how this connects with the last passage, the root of those evil things that we thought about in the first 12 verses that might be said, it, it, it starts inside before it comes out, bitter jealousy or envy. We say, oh, well, no, it's just, it's zeal I have. That's why I'm saying this thing. Or it's a want of justice. But actually, in many cases, is it just envy? Is it just that we're bitter? A bitterness to ourselves, a bitterness towards others, and it makes us then unpleasant to those with whom we spend our time bitter like a grapefruit. I wonder, boys and girls, uh, if you like, I'm sure you have to take when you're going to school your fruit with you. Maybe you take an orange. I know uh, our daughter takes an orange to school. It's a nice citrus fruit, but I wonder if any of you have tried a grapefruit. Any of you tried a grapefruit? Some of the older people maybe here like a nice grapefruit. There's plenty of bitterness in there. Most people probably don't, uh, and most boys and girls probably wouldn't like to put their, a big chunk out of a grapefruit thinking it was an orange. It is bitter. It's unpleasant in our experience. And that's what happens when we meet someone who is filled with bitter jealousy or envy. It's unpleasant to taste. It's unpleasant uh, to have that experience. How might, how might we spot it? How does envy reveal its presence? We'd see it by having a certain form of grief when others are actually enjoying themselves, when uh, something is good is happening, and we can't accept that. We've got examples in the Bible of that. Genesis 4, Cain was sad because Abel's sacrifice was accepted. 
others, other people's having something shouldn't cause us uh, to be in envy. We don't necessarily have a lack of something just because someone else has something. Secondly, in rejoicing at their evils, uh, disgrace, and ruin, uh, Psalm 22 verse 7 speaks of this. Do we rejoice when something bad happens to someone else? Well, that shows that there's actually a bitter envy in our hearts towards that person. When we like to hear, oh, things haven't quite gone his way. Things haven't quite worked out for her. We'd also see uh, bitter jealousy when we are not generous, when we do not share with others what we have. And envy and strife sometimes can appear as under the guise of zeal. Uh, it's easy to assume a pretense of religion. Uh, if you remember in the book of, uh, and we're dealing with James, but uh, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, do you remember Paul? Uh, there were the factions involved in the church, the rivalries there in Corinth, and uh, there were some who said, we follow Cephas. Others said, we follow Paul. Others said, we follow Apollos. But there was even those who said, I follow, G I follow Christ. And the way uh, the Apostle Paul writes of this, he's not saying, oh, you should just be following Christ and don't worry about following me or Apollos or Cephas. He's saying in each of these groups, including those who claim to follow Christ, it's actually a charge against them. It's a pretense. It's a false claim under the guise of zeal, and actually there's envy and strife, there's bitter jealousy amongst those who they're supposed to be in the same church as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we need to examine our desires. Uh, James is calling us this evening to say, well, do we have a bitter jealousy towards others? But it's not just bitter jealousy or envy that James is poking at, it's also selfish ambition. This is, in a sense, the usual follow-on from envy. And he says it's in your hearts, because although it is, in a sense, managed by the tongue or the hand, it is first appearing in the heart. It's contrived in the heart, uh, and then it aggravates. Uh, and, of course, as we think about uh, issues that might arise in the life of a church, in the life of a congregation, obviously I don't know you as well as you know each other. I don't know you as well uh, as Philip knows you, as well as Philip and the elders might know things that are going on. And sometimes tensions can arise. Sometimes there can be unintended division, unintended rifts between Christians, misunderstanding, miscommunication, and that can happen. But when these things are cherished in the heart, well, then they quickly become abominable. They destroy relationships with one another, and when aggravated, might even get to the point of destroying a church, selfish ambition in your hearts. There's nothing in a person's life that is not first in his heart. Uh, and so we need to look to the heart. We need to keep the heart clean if we want to have our lives free from this wrong. Uh, Proverbs 4 tells us, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. This passage tonight calls us to examine our hearts and to see if these two things are there, this bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition. It's not the only uh, things that are mentioned. He goes on to talk about do not boast. Uh, that is, do not boast about your Christianity. Don't say, look at me, I'm a Christian. It doesn't say boast about your zeal. 
or any special wisdom or ability. Remember Jeremiah 9, may I never boast, uh, sorry, that's Galatians. Uh, Jeremiah 9 says, let the wise man not boast of his wisdom, the strong man not boast of his strength, nor the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows and understands me, the Lord. And that's a boast that is made in humility. There's also, in verse 14, there's a lot in this one verse, uh, this denying of the truth. This actually might not be uh, by uh, what you say. It could actually be by a, a worldly profession of faith. In other words, hypocrisy. Think of those, maybe you've known them. Uh, hopefully, it's not you who have stood up here at the front uh, on days uh, and made vows before God uh, to become a communicant member here in the church or uh, when a child is being baptized and they get up and they say, yes, I do. I will. I agree with what's been said. Yes, this is what I believe. Yes, this is what, by God's grace, I will do. And then time goes on and it's forgotten, and the vows aren't really kept. And of course, none of us can keep our vows perfectly, but in some cases, there doesn't seem to be any effort whatsoever. And so, are we denying the truth by our lives, marked by hypocrisy, where in practice we've told a lie? Some speak lies, others do them. Well, if anyone is displaying these traits, it flies in the face of claims to be wise and understanding, according to James. And in verse 15, this is described as, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. And at this point, I want to reflect for a minute or two on that first passage I read from Luke chapter 8. Uh, maybe it's familiar to you when Jesus comes across uh, the, sea of, or the, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, he steps out and immediately he's met by a man who's in a really bad way. Uh, he is one who uh, is wearing no clothes. If you saw someone out running around Connor with no clothes, as soon as you walked out, you'd think there's something wrong here. You'd be wanting to call the police. You'd be wanting to call, is this someone who's uh, come from Hollywell? You wouldn't be quite sure what is going on. He's not in his right mind. Uh, not only is he naked, but he has not lived in a house. Instead, he dwells among the tombs. Uh, and again, think of those reading this. Think of the situation with Jesus and his disciples. To be associated with the tombs was to be associated with being unclean. To be touching death, to be near death, was to be unclean. So here we have a man with no clothes, a man who's not in his right mind. He's unclean. And he's not living amongst people. He's living amongst the dead. He's living in isolation. He previously lived in the city. Uh, as, we, as we read on and see, uh, people didn't know what to do with this man. Uh, they had tried to keep him under guard, bound with chains and shackles, uh, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the, into the desert. The people had tried all within their means to deal with this man, but they couldn't deal with him. They couldn't sort out his problem. In a sense, he was a lost cause, isolated and out of his mind, amongst the tombs, naked. That is, until he meets Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the clear authority of Jesus who casts out this legion of demons. In a sense, that's why one of the reasons Luke has this in Luke chapter 8, 
Uh, it's not that Luke needs to show us that Jesus can cast out a demon. He already did that earlier in the gospel, uh, one demon and the man in the synagogue in Capernaum. But here Jesus' authority extends now to many demons. And we can see the, the transformation in this man's life uh, as all the people from the city and country come out when the dead pigs are there. Uh, and we see he's clothed. We turn around, he's clothed. He's in his right mind. Uh, and more than that, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, wanting to learn from Jesus, wanting to listen to Jesus. And also he wants to cling to Jesus. He wants to travel with Jesus. But in this case, Jesus says, no, I want you to go home and tell what God has done for you. And there's an interesting twist at the end. The man doesn't say what God has done for him, but what Jesus has done for him, because clear is the fact that Jesus has been sent by God with such authority. Now, why am I talking to you about this in the middle of a sermon uh, on James? Well, when we think of the demon-possessed man, uh, we think of, well, this is what was going on in the early days in the first century with Jesus. Maybe this sort of thing still happens in far-flung places where people have given themselves over to witchcraft or uh, shamans or uh, ancestor worship and the like, but we don't really see that around here. You don't see that around County Antrim in 2023. Uh, we don't see this sort of thing. In fact, uh, the naturalist would say even this, well, it wasn't really demon possession. It was just a, some sort of psychological disorder. It was borderline personality disorder. It was uh, paranoid schizophrenia, something like that. And yet it's very clear as you read this that that can't be the case because uh, look at the supernatural strength this demon-possessed man has. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and yet he was able to break the bonds without issue. This was a miracle. This is not just uh, something made up because people were primitive then and didn't understand mental health. No, this was a miracle. A demon-possessed man delivered. Now, you might think, well, we don't see anything like this. Yet, as I say, when we come back to James, you'll see, hopefully, why I've included that. James is calling the church to practice heavenly wisdom, but when he sees bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, look at what he goes on to call this. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Demonic. This is another example of James not downplaying or relativizing sins which we think are not that bad. I'm sure a bit of jealousy, a bit of selfish ambition, sure it's not as bad as murder, sure it's, it's not as bad as sexual immorality. Well, James tells us it's actually demonic. It was given birth in the pit of hell and the devil is behind it. And so this evening, you may not be running around tombs naked, not running around Connor Graveyard, but nonetheless, if for, verse 14 can be consistently said of you, then the implication is that the demonic has some hold on you of the devil. This is the third characteristic of, of false wisdom. It, it is called this because Satan is the author. Worldly men are, are taught by hell. Uh, this is to carry on these sorts of things, even though we might see them in the people around about us, they should not have any place in Christ's church. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
been given them over to all sorts of behaviors, but these are behaviors that should increasingly have no place in Christ's church. It's of the devil. Verse 16 then, if we go on, uh, this can of course be seen in, in society at large, but we certainly do not want to see it in the church as I've said, and yet sadly at times we do. Verse 16 uh, of James uh, 3 says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. These things which start in the heart, they, as we've already touched on, they outwork themselves. They outwork themselves in our relationships. Maybe you've experienced that in relationship that you've had with a spouse or with someone else, with someone in your family. Maybe they've been outworked in your experience of church, whether in this congregation or maybe in a former congregation. Maybe that's why you're here, because you've left another congregation, because uh, to you it was filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which led to all sorts of other vile practice and strife. That is not the church that Christ wants. It is not the church that James wants. And I'm sure you, as someone who knows the Lord Jesus, it's not something you want to be part of. Instead, verse 17 and 18 give us the positives, the, the, the wisdom that comes down from above, the wisdom that comes from heaven, we read. It's first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James comes to the list, uh, the he comes to list the fruits of true wisdom. He calls it wisdom that comes from heaven. And the first thing, uh, not go through all of these, we could in a sense have a whole sermon on each of these things, but to focus a bit more on some of them, the word uh, that he starts with is pure, the first pure, meaning chaste or, or modest, and when we think about purity, uh, there are two types of purity. There is the purity which excludes mixture. So we might say that a, a something, a, a wine or a drink is, is pure when it's just unadulterated. It's just this. It's not been mixed with something else. It's not a cocktail. Uh, and there's then uh, pure, which is that which excludes dirt. And so we say water is pure. Uh, when it's come from a, a, a nice spring, a well, uh, when it's not contaminated with any dirt. In the former sense, purity is contrasted with hypocrisy, but in this latter sense, it is contrasted with uncleanness, which seems to be the meaning in this passage, uh, th that someone is chaste, that someone is pure. And you might say, well, have I kept my heart pure? Am I clean and without sin? Well, we've already thought about uh, Psalm 24 earlier. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those who have a, a clean, clean hands and a pure heart. We know the words of Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart. The words of David in the Psalms, blessed are they whose ways are blameless or pure. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, that doesn't match up with us all the time. Uh, we'll read on next time. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're called to, to, to keep short accounts with God. We're called to seek purity in our hearts. We're not called to sort of pass things over, to hold on to sin, to cover it up. 
We're called to uncover it, to lay it before God, and to know God's forgiveness in Christ. To know that we can have our uh, unbelieving thoughts, our impure thoughts cleansed. To know that we can be pardoned in Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit. That we can stop sinning. We can wash our hands. We can know that uh, morality, that's that morality that comes following uh, our justification. We read in so many places in the New Testament about how we're washed and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you see, sometimes we get the wrong idea with salvation. Uh, we just look for salvation, but not moral cleanness. We big up justification, and as important as that is, we have to be careful not to exclude sanctification. True purity is when the Spirit is purged from both guilt and filth, the conscience being cleansed from acts that lead to death, and the heart from a guilty conscience, as Hebrews 10 says. So, purity is what Christ calls us to. Purity is what the church is called to. And so, we want this evening to root out any jealous, uh, a jealousy or selfish ambition which might be resident in our hearts. If we're in Christ, our hearts have been changed. We have new hearts, and yet we live in this world where we are attacked by the world, our sinful flesh, and the devil. And so, we need to ask ourselves honest questions about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and we need to bring these things, and we need to seek the cleansing of Christ. And so, let's do that now as we pray together. Lord God and Father, we bow before you. And again, uh, you are God who has revealed your ways and your will for us so that we do not need to guess, so that we do not need to think we need to come up with our own system of what is right and what is wrong, with what is a proper morality to, to adhere to, because you reveal that to us. And we are so prone to, to think of certain sins as great and other sins as not that big a deal. We might include bitter jealousy. We might include selfish ambition amongst that list of things that aren't that important. And yet, as we've gathered this evening, these things are from demonic wisdom. Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would uh, lay your word upon our hearts this evening, and that those uh, things might be rooted out where they are found in our lives, that we would confess them to you, that we would seek your cleansing in Christ, the only way we can be cleansed, and that we would uh, show forth the fruit of wisdom that is from above, that we would be pure and peaceable, that we would be gentle, that we would be open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. True religion is not a barren tree, but a fruitful tree. And so we ask for ourselves as individuals, but also as a congregation of Christ Church here in Connor, that there would be great fruitfulness as we seek that purity of heart, undivided, in our love for you and in our love for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.